If you take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. This is our second week in the book of Acts. We're beginning a study, slowly working our way through Acts. We just finished Exodus, and Acts is the, the next journey we're, we're going on. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 26 in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to pray and then, and then read it for us. Father God, we remember that this is your word. This is your word that you have given to us. Your spirit carried along men as they wrote it for us. And we know that your word is profitable. May it be profitable to us. Uh, Would you um, grant us the grace this morning uh, to hear what you would have for us, uh, that we would hear warnings, we would hear promises, Uh, We would hear um, of your wrath, and we would hear of your grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Join with me in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let, no, and, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and... Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time, uh, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the bab- from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must come, uh, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two: Joseph, called Barsabbas who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the question beginning this text is, so now what? Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Spirit has not yet come. What are the disciples to do? Well, they're to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Spirit. And that's what we see happen. They return from the Mount of Olives, the Mount called Olivet, back to Jerusalem. They go, they enter the city, go to the upper room where they were staying, and then Luke gives us some of the names of those. We have the apostles here, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and then we're also told that there were some of the women uh, who followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene was surely there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. The brothers of Jesus, these are all those that we're told were present. Um, But it was more than just this. We're told down in verse 15 that in all there were about 120 people in this room. So it wasn't just the 12 minus Judas Iscariot and then the family of Jesus. It was much more. And we remember, it's, I think it's easy for us to forget that Jesus always had a crowd following him. There were always more disciples than just the 12, right? A, a disciple is a student, a, a learner, and there were always more. Jesus had lots of students following him. Back in Luke 10, Jesus commissions the 72 and sends them out. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that the resurrected Lord appeared to a group of 500. Jesus always had large crowds following him, and that crowd is here, 120. But out of those 120, there were 12 that had been chosen to be apostles. And this is the difference between an apostle and a a disciple. A disciple is a student, and an apostle is is an ambassador. An apostle is someone who is commissioned by the king and speaks in the name of the king and speaks with the power of the king. We'll talk more about apostles in a moment. But out of this group of 120, Luke tells us that Peter stands up. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would point to this as an instance of Peter's supremacy and the seat of power for all papal authority. But they would also give Mary a lot of credit here as well, and Mary does not stand up and speak. Peter was always standing up and speaking. And I think it's pretty important to point out that this is the same Peter who denied Jesus Christ three times on the night of his capture, and yet he'd been restored, and he was obediently following the word of the Lord to feed the sheep. And so he stands up and leads this discussion. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter is saying here on the surface that as far as Judas is concerned, scripture had to be Fulfilled. Scripture told us that Judas 
would betray Jesus. And so it had to happen. God was not surprised by Judas's actions. He was not caught off guard. Scripture spoke about Judas. And we're reminded here that God is sovereign over our sin in such a way that he can use our sin to accomplish his purposes. Without the sin of Judas here, without his betrayal, you don't have Jesus dying on a cross for sinners. God is sovereign over our sin and will always use it to accomplish his purposes. He does that with Judas. He was not caught off guard. Scripture spoke of this and we know God always keeps his word. Now, if we look a little closer at verse 16, there's something I really want to hammer on. The Scripture, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So let's pause right there. There's something really important here, and it's the doctrine of inspiration. And I'll introduce it this way. We are a church that really believes that the Bible is true and authoritative. Okay, that's a radical thing to say in, uh, in our country in 2021. We believe that the Bible is true and authoritative, that it is just as powerful and authoritative as hearing God speak directly from heaven. We believe it is his word. And since it is his word, reason shows us that it is inerrant, meaning that it is without error. And even more than that, we believe that it is infallible, meaning that it is incapable of error because it's God's word. Well, the question is, how do we get God's word? We get it through inspiration. We get it through inspiration. Um, I'll give you my seminary definition of inspiration, and then I'll give you an a, uh, easier definition. The seminary definition is, Inspiration is the process by which God's revelation was inscripturated. It's a, a, maybe I was just sleepy that day and I left out the second half of that definition in my notes. But, but that's, that's, that's on to something. Inspiration is the process by which God's revelation was inscripturated. Well, make that a little clearer for me. Peter does that in 2 Peter 1. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, he gives a fantastic example. Peter says this, quote, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? You hear that? Scripture does not originate from human interpretation, It does not originate from the human will. Rather, the authors of Scripture spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means that David and all the other biblical authors were directed by the Holy Spirit. That's how how we get Scripture. God speaks. He reveals himself. His Spirit carries along these authors They write it down. They inscripturate it. That's how we have our Bible. Now, of course, these uh, these authors of Scripture 
are not writing like robots who all sound identical because they're carried on by the Spirit. No. Each biblical author has his own style and his own voice. They write in different ways. The Bible is not monotoned. David has his own personality and his own rhetorical flair. But the words that he wrote did not originate in his brain. The words that like he, like the rest, was an instrument used by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in verse 16. Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, this is important to harp on because, again, the authority of Scripture is one of those areas of the Christian faith that is most under attack today. And it is a line that we must hold. It would be presumptive for me to assume that we're all in the same place when it comes to the authority of Scripture. I I don't want to assume anything. And so I constantly need to say from the pulpit, and you constantly need to hear that we believe this is God's Word. It is true, it is our authority, and we stand on it. It is our only authority, sola scriptura. We need to pound the authority of Scripture over and over and over again. So Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. All right, we're going to talk about Judas for a moment. And I know this is near impossible because when you hear the name Judas, you instantly know. I mean, it has so much weight uh, with it. But try, just imagine this with fresh ears. Hear, hear Judas's name with fresh ears. This is a person who lived with Jesus. Not only, he knew Jesus, he lived with Jesus, he traveled with Jesus for years. He was along for the ride, and not only that, he was active. John 12, 6 tells us that he served as the group's treasurer. Now, he did take a little bit off the top for himself. We're told that. He stole money out of the pot, but he served as the group's treasurer. So he's, he's an officer. Judas would have been there among the 72 in Luke 10 that Jesus sends out. And he would have been among them when they returned and said, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Judas was present at the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus' teaching. He heard his parables. He witnessed miracles. And yet, he turned out to be Judas. It's a very, it's a scary thing to hear. It's a sobering thing to hear. I mean, it really strikes at my heart, and I imagine it does yours as well, that someone who was so close could turn out to be Judas. Someone who knew so much and experienced so much could throw it all away for something else, for 30 pieces of silver. That was Judas's temptation. That was, that was his thing that caused him to just throw it all away. 
think it's really important we know what our 30 pieces of silver is. What is the thing within us that we desire? What is the sin that resides within us that might tempt us most to say, yeah, I'm going to throw it all away. This is worth it. We better know it and we better guard against it. As my mama would say, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. None of us are above and or beyond doing what Judas did. None of us are above or beyond abandoning Christ. And I think all of us, all of us have experienced real grief over the years with family and friends who have made similar decisions. We have a family or a friend who says yes to their sin and then they just wreck their life or their marriage or their family or their career. It happens over and over again and it is heartbreaking. We must never say, oh, what what Judas did, I would never do that. Never say you would never do that. I'm convinced that if God uh, were to remove his protecting providential care and left me to my sin, there is nothing that I would not do. Nothing. Don't be surprised by what Judas did. That same seed is in all of our hearts. There's an English reformer named John Bradford. Uh, He was martyred under the uh, tyrannical reign of Mary Tudor, uh, belovedly known as Bloody Mary. And Bradford is known by church historians for multiple reasons, but one of them is this idiom, this saying that is attached to him. And you've probably heard it before. It goes something like, There but for the grace of God go I. Apparently the story was that John Bradford was at a public execution. Public executions were about like going to the high school football game on Friday night. I mean, it was was a big deal. It drew, I mean, there could be 10, 15, 18,000 people to show up for a public execution. And uh, it was was a public event. Everybody came out. Um, It served... Multiple purpose. There's reasons the government did that, and there's also reasons they stopped doing those um, that we aren't going to get into. But John Bradford is at one of those public executions, and he watched from the crowd as this poor criminal was being led up front to the place of his death. And as John Bradford saw him, his heart was moved, and he spoke these famous words. There but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. He's saying, I know my heart. I know that the same evils that led to this man's execution, those same evils reside within my heart. And if God were to remove his grace, that could just as easily be me being led up front. I am no different. I wonder if we know our own hearts that well. Or if we're still naive enough to believe that we could never be a Judas. 
Stories like Judas, stories we hear about friends and loved ones who chase sin and then shipwreck their life, it should cause us to echo John Bradford and say, there but for the grace of God go I. But it should also direct us to the Lord in prayer in a special way, where we say things like, Lord, Keep me close. Keep me close. Keep my heart soft. Never, never let me go. Give me faith. And not only faith, give me repentance. Expose the secret sin in my heart. Destroy any false assurance that I have. Lord, never, ever leave me. That's a big change from when... You have a friend or loved one who shipwrecks their life and you say, how? I can't believe it. How could they do this? I mean, it's, it's easy. We're, we're sinners and if God removes his grace from us and puts us in the right circumstances, it's, it's, a, it's fully understandable. Instead of becoming indignant saying, how on earth could this happen? We should say, Lord, but for your grace. So go I, keep me close to you. And in verses 18 and 19, Luke pauses Peter's speech just to give some background information. And it is just as revealing and horrifying. We're told, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open In the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. So Judas hangs himself and he dies in a most horrifying and graphic and disgraceful way and that disgrace carries on over to the property that he bought. What Luke is giving us here, what we see in Judas's demise is a picture of the fate of everyone who despises Jesus Christ. This is a warning. Do not despise and reject Jesus Christ. If you do, you may not suffer a violent graphic death like Judas did, but in the end you will face the full wrath of God. You can read through 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10, and you get a picture of this. Vengeance that is coming on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord. There's, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. This is, this is a warning. It's a warning to flee judgment and run to Christ. I also think it's important I remind you of this truth, that I don't care who you are, I don't care what you have done, I don't care if uh, when you look at yourself, you think you made Judas look like a Boy Scout. There is grace for you. There is grace for you. Jesus Christ took all the sins of his church 
upon himself. And Jesus met a graphic, horrifying end on the cross. His side was split open by the spear and water and blood flowed from it. And when we look at the cross, we identify with it. We see our sins hanging there. We believe he died for me. And the moment we do that, the Holy Spirit applies that work of redemption to you and to me. And in that moment, we are forever sure that our end will never be like Jesus, like, like Judas's end. Instead of judgment and condemnation, all we will know is grace. So Luke has that brief interjection on Judas's end, and then he gets back to Peter's words in verse 20. And Peter begins by quoting two psalms. The first is from Psalm 69, 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then the second one is a quotation of Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. Peter is talking about replacing Judas with another apostle. And we wonder how he got there. And you have to think, you know, did he talk to Jesus about this before the ascension? We don't know. We aren't told. But we do know that they have been searching the scriptures and they have found these two psalms. These psalms that point to an enemy of the Lord's anointed and that his life and legacy ends in bitterness and ruin and also that this one, this enemy, must be replaced. And so that's what they set out to do. And we see that in verse 21 and 22. So have you ever thought about what's the job experience to be an apostle? If you're going to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus, what requirements would you have to meet? Well, we're told right here in verses 21 and 22. The first thing we see is that the person who is going to take this spot, who's going to fill this position, is someone who has been with Jesus' disciples from the beginning, from the days of his baptism with John. So this is going to be an inside hire. We're hiring someone who's been with the company since the very beginning. We aren't going outside. That's what we see here. Someone who has been with the disciples since Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now that's going to exclude a lot of people. The second thing is that he had to also be an eyewitness of the resurrection. He had to have seen the risen Christ. And those are the two requirements given by Peter. He's been around since the beginning, since the baptism of Jesus, and also seen the resurrection. Now, you might think, well, what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul was not there at the baptism of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was not here in this room at this time with this, this, uh, these 120 followers of Jesus. What about Paul? Well, we're going to talk about Paul a lot more when we get there. And when we get to Acts 9 and the road to Damascus, we'll see this. But there are a couple distinctions that make Paul a, spe- a special case. Number one, Paul encountered the risen Christ in person on the road to Damascus and was personally called to be an apostle. Second, 
Paul had the unanimous consent of the 12 that he was an apostle. So Paul goes and talks to the other 12 apostles, and there is unanimous consent that Paul is, in fact, an apostle. So he has the Damascus Road experience, and then the unanimous consent from the rest of the 12. Now, you know, with Christians and churches, getting everyone to agree on something is quite an accomplishment. So this really... This points to something here. It's important. Now, with those requirements out of the way, I hope it's somewhat obvious for us to see that there are no more apostles today. Now, there are churches who say that there are apostles in their church, and there are pastors and ministers who say that they are apostles. But if we take this New Testament criteria, it's pretty simple to see that the apostolic office has ended. There is no one alive today who witnessed the baptism of Jesus. There is no one alive today that saw the risen Christ in between his resurrection and his ascension. Even if you claim to have some type of Damascus Road experience, there is no one alive today who is going to get a unanimous 12 votes from the apostles. It's not going to happen. It is not a perpetual office. It was a temporary office. And why? A couple easy reasons. Think about what's going on at this time. The New Testament has not yet been written. That has to happen. The foundation of the church has to be laid. That has not yet happened. Well, guess what has happened for us? We have the New Testament And the foundation of the church has been laid. There are no new books being added to the Bible. We don't need any apostles to add new books. And we don't need any apostles to lay a second or third or fourth foundation on top of the one we have. We have no need for apostles today. So if you you meet someone who claims to be an apostle, it should be a red flag for you. Now we see the choosing of this replacement, verse 23. Apparently there were, there were two guys that met this requirement. One, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Uh, they didn't know which one to pick. Obviously both were qualified. I'll argue in a second that one may have seemed more qualified than another. But they didn't know who to pick. So they prayed, and I love this prayer. They said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry. They're saying, God, you know all things. You know the hearts of these two men. And Lord, we remember Proverbs 16, 33, that the lot is cast in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. So Lord, we're just going to cast lots and we're just going to trust you. If this lot lands on Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabas, a.k.a. Justice, we'll go with him. If the lot lands on Matthias, we'll go with him. You control this, Lord, you pick. So that's what they do. They cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. And he becomes the 12th apostle, Judas's replacement. Now, if you aren't familiar with lots, the easiest way to explain it, just think of some dice or a coin that is flipped and that's how a decision would be 
made. And that's essentially what they did. You, I mean, to put it in our terms, you flip a coin, heads was, heads was uh, Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabas, a.k.a. Justice, and tails was Matthias. And it lands on Matthias. Now, I remember back on my, my first stint in Corinth, I, I was not yet married and I was uh, visiting my parents down in Startville and I was uh, deciding, I was with my mom and dad and we were out on the deck under some trees and uh, I was deciding whether or not I was going to drive back to Corinth that night or uh, wait, spend the night there and then wake up early the next morning and drive back. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I don't know if I just read this verse or I was just like, you know what, God's sovereign. I, I, I don't know what it was, but I thought, you know, I'm just going gonna, gonna to flip a coin. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to go with it. And if, if, if it's heads, I'm going to get in my car right now and go home. And if it's tails, I'll spend the night. And uh, I won't get dinner in Tupelo. I'll eat here and then just drive back early in the morning. And mom and dad just kind of looked at me in a funny way. And I got a coin and flipped it and it landed on heads. And I thought, all right, here I go. That's it. I'm leaving. And so I grabbed my bag, threw it in my car, and took off north on Highway 45 back towards Corinth. Now, that brings up a question. Should we still do this? Was I right to do that? Just flip a coin for all your hard life decisions. Should I marry, should I marry this person or not? Heads, I marry them. Tails, I don't. Uh... Is it time to start a family? Heads, yes. Tails, no. Should I take this job? Heads, yes. Tails, no. Is that how, I mean, we just offer up a prayer and then flip a coin. Is that what we should do today? It's what the apostles did. I would point out that at this point in the story, again, the New Testament is not complete and the Holy Spirit has not yet come. And this is the last time We see lots being cast in the New Testament. You don't see it again. It doesn't happen again. So as Christians, we do have the Holy Spirit and we really do believe the Holy Spirit guides us and directs us. We also have the New Testament. We have the full closed canon of Scripture. So we have God's Word and we have God's Spirit. We do not need to flip coins or use lots. Instead, we make decisions based on the teaching of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I know sometimes we wish it would just be easier. I could just flip a coin. But we make our decisions based on the teaching of Scripture and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. We use, as uh, one commentator wrote, We use Bible-informed wisdom in the context of the local church community in order to make faithful, God-honoring decisions. We don't have to flip coins. Very last comment. It's on the names of these two guys that are up for the spot. You've got Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabas, a.k.a. Justice, and then you've got Matthias. Now, I believe that if we were to compare these two side by side, from a human perspective, Joseph, Barsabas, Justice would be the more appealing choice. 
He's named first. He's, his name is put in a place of primacy. Also, Barsabas means son of an oath. And justice means honesty. So, I mean, you're thinking, all right, this person is going to replace Judas. How about the son of oath who is honest to the core? How about, how about that guy? That seems, that seems great. That's the first choice that's listed. But God doesn't choose the first choice. He doesn't choose Joseph, Barsabas, Justice. He chooses little old Matthias, a man whose name is never mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament. You can comb through the rest of the New Testament and you will never see his name ever mentioned again. But how many times do we see God do this in Scripture where he passes over this seemingly obvious choice by human standards and he picks the runt, the youngest, the lesser important? He does that with Joseph. He does that with David. He does that with Jacob picking the younger over the older. He does that over and over and over again. And he's reminding us that he is the one who sees and judges the heart. I just want to end by charging you that by the Spirit's help, that we would begin to care less about what other people think and we would care more about what God thinks. He is the judge. He is the sovereign. It's his opinion that matters. And if you have hidden your life in Christ, you are a precious child to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for speaking through these authors by your spirit that it might be written down for our knowledge and for um, for our wisdom and for our salvation. Father, would we be those who take sin seriously? Would we be those who always remember the cross and flee to it? And would we be those who see our identity and our worth and our value and our dignity in being a child of God bought for by the blood of Jesus Christ? We ask this in his most holy and precious name. Amen. Our final hymn of response is number 642 in your hymnal. Be thou my vision, would you stand and sing with me?